they're committed to the transition and being a customer-centric company. And I've mentioned this before, but when you're listening to the market and you're listening to your customers, it's a great opportunity to shine. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Are you interested in sponsoring Smart Energy Voices? We are currently onboarding sponsors for our Season 2 programming. Check the show notes for details on packages. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to another episode of Smart Energy Voices. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please head over to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review. Today, I'm joined by Linda Clemens, Vice President of Sustainable Solutions at NRG Energy. Linda has had a tremendous career as, I believe, a real trailblazer in the energy industry, and I'm looking forward to diving into how she's gotten to where she is today. Welcome, Linda, to Smart Energy Voices. Thanks so much, John. I am really excited to have this conversation with you. We've known each other a long time, but we've never really gotten a chance to talk off stage, if you will. Yeah, and and our conversations have typically been focused on the current, and myself and our listeners are really going to get a chance to know you, and I'm as excited as you are. So why don't we start by having you tell us a little about yourself and your current role at NRG? Well, thank you for asking. That's always exciting to be able to tell a little bit about yourself to a listening audience. I'm working right now at NRG. I'm a vice president in business solutions, which is the commercial and industrial division of NRG. Within that, I have quite a few roles. I run a couple of brokerage businesses that one is focused on renewables, including community solar and virtual PPAs. And then another is more of a natural gas and power broker. I also have a sustainability advisory team and a project management team and an engineering and energy efficiency group, which sounds like a lot, but there's more. (laughs) I'm also guiding the building of NRG's electric vehicle strategy, working with our retail and commercial teams. And it really, I know it seems like a crazy diverse set of responsibilities, but it comes down to really incubating ideas and developing people. The commercial business opportunities whether they're in consulting or sales or brokerage, they all rely on relationships. And my teams work hard for their customers. And they also really interact with each other very well. One of the things that I love seeing is, for instance, a sustainability advisor on my sustainability team. And I think a team you know reasonably well, John. Yes. We'll work with the energy efficiency team to help a customer get a baseline for their consumption. They'll work with the renewables brokerage to help green up a customer's supply. And they'll work with engineering to dive into a possible fleet conversion to electric. So within my group, there's four or five different things that we get to talk about and we get to dream of possibilities. And that for me is really, really exciting. 
Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And they are disparate parts, but I see how the sustainability group and Greg is obviously someone I know well, and I see how he can kind of connect the dots and bring all those things together for customers. That's absolutely right. Connecting the dots is what we try to do best. All right. Let's start by talking about your career journey, Linda. You and I have talked previously, as as you alluded to, and your career is really characterized by a series of challenging opportunities where you've had to figure out what you and your company should be doing in a very dynamic and, and changing landscape. Tell us about how you got started in the energy industry and how things have evolved in your career. Thank you. I feel like I was born a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. When you look at what we're doing right now, I was a liberal arts major. And that's something that from a business perspective is less in vogue now. But I graduated from college in the early 90s. I loved history and I took French. And I also took some business classes just to sort of hedge my bets. My father really wanted me to do engineering. I thought about law. We never really agreed on anything. So I got a job and just kept going and doing things. I was recruited out of college by an investment bank, which seemed to be on the path at that time. There was a plan, if you will, that seemed natural for many of my fellow students, which was to get a liberal arts degree go into an investment bank or a consulting role, do that for a couple of years, then go get your MBA, and then the world is your oyster. And funny how plans work. They never really seem to work the way you think they're going to do. When I went to go work for the investment bank, I did it for a year, and I realized it probably wasn't the best fit for me. I was the only analyst in a small office, but it did bring me to Houston. And during that year, I met some folks who were working for a little natural gas company called Enron. And within that first year at the investment bank, I was recruited by Enron. And the really interesting thing about that company to me and to the industry was that I had been sitting in an office. We did have offices back then, head down, running financial comparables to try and find deals to put together, try and find things that work. And some of it is you build in a hockey stick in your mind about what this mixture of these two companies, or if this company divests of this, what that's going to create in the future. And it very rarely comes true. And it's a lot of work because you have to go get both parties to agree to your vision. With Enron and with the natural gas industry, FERC Order 636, if you reach back into your memory banks, and natural gas deregulation was just taking place. And so there was already this playing field that was opening up and the ability to go in and and do new things in what was an old industry, but that already had a lot of infrastructure in place. And that was, was really interesting to me. So I thought being in an industry where you could actually touch and feel things and that provided a physical product versus mergers and acquisitions was really attractive. They had an analyst pool that I could go and I would have colleagues and be able to work with and learn a lot. And learning at that point in time was was my primary focus. When I went over to Enron in the analyst program, I promptly started working in mergers and acquisitions, which was, of course, not, not my goal in going there. But it was a place where I learned a lot and worked with one of my early mentors, Cliff Baxter. And I had the opportunity to watch those big deals that I'd been thinking about 
actually come to fruition. We acquired a gas marketing company and we worked on some other projects that as a 22-year-old, I got to sit in on salary negotiations for the executives of the companies that we acquired. Something that I don't think most most young professionals get the opportunity to do until much later. And so I had the opportunity to see somebody in action. Within that analyst and then later associate role, I got to see a lot of different parts of the energy industry. So within natural gas and within the trading world, things were developing rapidly. It was the beginning of mark-to-market accounting. It was the beginning of derivatives and trading financial instruments within the energy industry. And so there was so much happening in such a, such a great learning environment. I was very late going to get my MBA within that plan that didn't work, as I mentioned before. And I took an options class and I was like, oh, I learned all this before. I mean, I learned it on the trading floor when they said, hey, here, go figure out how to build an options model. And so that getting your feet wet and learning by doing has always been really, really fun for me. Within that, moving from gas molecules to actually trading financial energy products, I was really drawn to the idea of the emissions markets. And those were, it was very early days back then. And the Clean Air Act of 1990 had built in a couple of capitalist opportunities, financial opportunities to try and help regulation along. And so I actually started with a tiny book of business that Enron had acquired through a company. And there were a couple of SO2 allowances in it. And they gave me that and said, here, you have this tiny set of assets, go figure out what to do with it. And so within that market, I had no idea. And we really didn't, there wasn't internet back in the early nineties. So I called the EPA and I said, Hey, I'm trying to find out more about this sulfur dioxide allowance program. Can you send me some information? Can you tell me who's been allocated allowances? How does this work? So they sent me a cardboard box full of mimeographed sheets (laughs) that had a list of the power generators, all coal-fired utilities, and a couple of small electric generators who had been allocated allowances. And I literally started looking them up in the phone book and calling them and talking to them and finding out what it was they were planning on doing. Were they going to put in scrubbers? Did they anticipate they were going to need more allowances in the future? Did they anticipate that they were going to put on scrubbers and be able to sell more allowances in the future? And just getting an idea of who wanted what within that market. And that started my trading career, which I'll use air quotes for. And that was making, figuring out where I thought the value of those allowances was going to be and and buying and selling. And it was a lot of fun. And so I developed a little bit of a reputation as being in markets that were ancillary, but developing to what the core business was. And then We looked at an acquisition of a utility in the Pacific Northwest, and the bulk of their earnings were dictated by the flow of water. So it basically ended up being how much snowpack was there in the winter, and then how warm did it get in the springtime, which dictated the amount of of hydropower that could be produced, which dictated what prices were in that area. And so we extrapolated from that, and I can't take credit for the idea, but within our team, we developed the idea of weather derivatives and started talking to other companies. In the early days, it was Aquila 
and Coke Industries. And they were starting to trade in various financial areas as well. And so we participated with them in the in the first weather derivatives trade. And it was pretty incredible to come up with, figure out what the index is, right? How do you measure whether it's cold or hot? And heating and cooling degree days had been around in the electricity industry for a long time, but it wasn't something that we talked about that much in natural gas. And so that grew from that single trade into a traded marketplace and really became more of a, ultimately became more of an insurance product. And so working on that showed me interesting things about the insurance market. And I left Enron a year and a half before the implosion. And I left with a couple of folks and we started a new entity that was going to be focused on weather derivatives and weather insurance. And we got picked up by a company called XL Capital, letter X, letter L, out of Bermuda. And they had just formed a financial products group and they were interested in investing in us. And they allowed us to use their AA balance sheet. And we had a great time. And in the middle of that, of course, was the fall of Enron. And so we had trading positions on with them. And so that was less fun than it could have been. But nevertheless, we, we got through. And at some point, I really sort of realized that I was ready to go back to Texas. I had moved to Connecticut and had lived there for for four years and really enjoyed the Northeast summers, but less so the Northeast winters. And at that point, I'd had my first baby and uh, was ready to get back into doing other things besides focusing on, on the weather markets. And so with my move back to Houston, I started doing some consulting and worked under my own brand and was mostly doing things around the emissions markets, which was still drawing me back. One of the projects I did that I think was a forerunner of a little bit of what I'm doing now was a short-term consulting gig with Sun Edison. So big shout out to Jigger Shaw and Claire Broido Johnson. This was the mid-2000s. They were looking at large-scale developments for solar. They were talking to PG&E and others about where to locate these because most of the, the projects were in California at the time. You know, they were the first developer of the of the power purchase agreement. The PPA as a construct came out of what Sun Edison and Goldman Sachs were working on. But my work with Sun Edison was really about scouting locations for large-scale solar projects. And that was in the fairly early days. So for what we know now is a really incredibly active field. That all rolls forward to eventually joining NRG. And, you know, I feel like I've always been working on new things and something that's always a little bit of a twist on what's out there. I mean, right now, as I'm working with renewable energy, which is not new, but we're working with community solar, which is a a fairly new construct and only available in, in a couple of states. We're working with distributed energy on site with batteries. And then also our electric vehicle strategy, things that you know, I get to work on the retail side, see how our individual customer business works, and then also changing opportunities with our business clients and investigating what's happening out there, looking at corporate customers and figuring out how to do things for them. So it's always a journey for me, John, on how do I take what seems to be a need for our customers and and turn it into something that's replicable and useful. Well, it's interesting in hearing you describe the different roles, while they were different roles, different challenges, kind of related markets, your your natural curiosity and 
openness to learning, I, I think has really has served you well. I mean, there's a definite theme in all of those roles about your focus on kind of digging in, trying to understand the situation. And a vision popped immediately into my head of this large box of mimeograph sheets showing up from EPA and you uh, almost having a smile on your face digging into that thing. So as being involved in many of these transitions, natural gas deregulation, Clean Air Act, now what you're doing and trying to help energy figure out EVs and electrification, what would you say are the similarities and differences that you've noticed when tackling these challenges? You know, I think in the similarities of companies to see through change and overcome the initial inertia of thinking about things in an old way, how do they adjust themselves, how do they adjust their business model, or how do they adjust their workforce to try and manage those changes? I think that's something that's continuous and we've seen in every generation. The biggest change or difference I believe, is the rapidity with which people are adjusting to change. It seems to be increasing. So it's not only the amount of change, but it's also the rate of change that appears to be increasing. And and maybe that's just because I feel like from a technology perspective in my lifetime, there's been this fascinating jump. And Apple has really introduced us to how quickly people are willing to change their mindset about technology and, and to be able to adapt. I think the process has been similar within markets. You know, you think about natural gas deregulation in the 90s. It was a big thing. The industry talked about it a lot. FERC debated about it a lot. And there was large-scale movement. And that led to new developments and new risks. And the concept of risk management within the energy industry was really growing the concept of deregulation and what that meant for adjusting to financial risks was growing. I think we see the similar thing with electrification. There was a slow turn away from coal. And as that turn happened, people realized there were a lot of advantages to doing this. And maybe it's not as hard as we thought to go from our traditional fuels to something that's going to change the health prospects of the world going forward. But that electrification conversation Although some people have had it for a long time, it really, it it seems like it's almost asymptotic at at the rate at which it's increasing. It wasn't that long ago that solar was too expensive. And now people routinely are putting solar panels everywhere, not just their personal homes, but in any field available. It doesn't have to be the giant array that it used to be. So that personalization and that rate of change I think is is one of the things that really has been a big difference. Well, it certainly seems like in all the instances you've gotten involved at the very early stages of change and have this kind of uncanny knack to be able to almost foretell kind of where things are going to where things are going to go. I referenced earlier what's obviously a natural sense of curiosity I'm wondering from your from your perspective, why do you think you have found yourself continually during your career in the middle of being presented with the challenge of trying to figure things out in, in, in the state of major market shifts? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One, I'm I'm typically unburdened by 
deep knowledge in the particular area that I'm being asked questions. <laughs> and uh, so that gives you, let's call it flexibility. Yes, yes. In how to approach things. And I, I think curiosity, that natural curiosity is is a really critical element. And also the ability to just disregard immediate previous experiences for the sake of thinking about the future problem. It's almost a, a removing of yourself to be able to say, I know I've had these experiences, but what is this scenario telling me? And what are the ideas that the customer or the market is asking for? And I think being willing to talk through the options in blue sky and spend some time just thinking has been something that's been granted to me to have that time and I think has been a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. There aren't many people who can come into a situation without kind of a preconceived notion for what they think is going to happen, their natural bias and your kind of openness to learn. And I think your curiosity is, has obviously served you well. So it kind of all boils down to your personality and, and mindset. What do you think fostered that mindset? I think there's a little bit, certainly a risk-taking element. I've always loved spending time in nature and you don't know always what you're going to get on that hike when you come around the corner and there's a giant moose with her baby laying in your path and there's really no way to go around. You know, I was always attracted to adventure sports, whether that was scuba diving or snowboarding or mountain climbing. And, you know, I feel like when you prepare yourself to take on a different challenge, not knowing what that challenge is going to be, then it can be reflected in your your professional and, and business life as well. Yeah, that conveys a certain sense of fearlessness, I think is what I describe that, that or as. Or naivete. It's hard to or, say. <laughs> okay. So in these roles and during during these opportunities, what were some of your greatest challenges? So I think initially youth and inexperience, which could be an asset, but can also be a liability, trying to understand the motivations and the frameworks of different industries, understanding how the emissions industry was was built around a regulatory construct versus natural gas, which was that market was around deregulatory construct. It forces you to attack the problems in, in different ways. So you were young, you were inexperienced, you're also a woman, a woman in a very male-dominated industry. Did that factor present any unique issues for you at all? It may have been that naivete. I didn't feel that as much as I felt my youth. You know, I think I've had uh, tremendous blessings throughout my career of having thoughtful bosses the vast majority of them men, but men who were willing to allow me to be me and think about issues and interact and whether or not they had preconceived notions about what I was capable of, they didn't show that to me. And so I've had leaders who have always had confidence or shown confidence. And, you know, I think that was reflected in, in the way I perform my jobs. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you've touched there on the impact that different people have had on your career. I'm wondering who or what has been most in instrumental in, in your growth within the industry. 
I think for the early days, Richard Sandor, who was with Chicago Board of Trade and was considered sort of the father of financial derivatives. And he, within the Chicago Board of Trade, ran an annual sulfur dioxide auction on behalf of the EPA. And my participation in that auction led me to be able to meet him and talk to him over the years. And he's still someone that, that I look up to. And he, he's not afraid of taking chances and creating new marketplaces and figuring out how to make that best work for him. He's been very successful at that. I mean, he started CCX and he started a number of ventures that I think have reflected that sort of pioneering spirit that I most admire about him. Interesting. I guess his influence has really been as a role model. I mean, there's a certain sense of example that he provided, kind of getting into that notion of inspiration a little further. Who would you say inspires you and and why? So I am, I'll admit this, an Elon Musk devotee. (laughs) And well, I don't think I could ever be as brash as he is. And maybe that's because I don't have quite that level of confidence, but I'm continually impressed by what his thought process is, how he's able to disregard any criticism of, of what he's doing and, and to be himself. And his push, whether it was PayPal or Tesla, he's really, he's shown tremendous originality in the way he approaches problems, but using solutions that the market was asking for, but they didn't necessarily know they were asking for. I have one other, and it's, it's a duo, and this is really more from a humanitarian and thoughtfulness approach, so probably on the, on the personality side, the opposite, but Bill and Melinda Gates and the work that they've done in health and in developing nations, as well as the things that they're working on in energy right now, I, I find that very inspiring to think that you know, Bill Gates would sit down and say, how do we make a better toilet to try and create better health for developing nations. To me, that's, that's incredibly inspiring. And, and that goes back to my love of nature and my desire to see a, a clean world and provide opportunities for, for children to grow up in a healthy environment. Yeah. Well, two great examples, Linda. I, I think people have described Elon Musk as kind of today's Edison. And I, I think it's an apt description, the impact he's having in so many areas is is truly incredible. The thing that impresses me most about the Gates are, are how they're, their focus now is truly on making the world a better place and helping those that are disadvantaged and less fortunate. And I, I can't think of a more noble way to deploy the, the fruits of one's success in helping to raise others up. Those are two great folks to be inspired by. Well, thank you for that. I I appreciate it. These are somewhat personal questions and your openness and and sharing is is really appreciated. Let's talk a little more about what you're up to now. And when you were describing your career, you referenced what you're currently doing at NRG, but I'm curious as to what attracted you to NRG. You were on your own. You're clearly very entrepreneurial and 
you're doing some interesting things, and here it is, you joined this large, this large energy company. What attracted you to NRG? It did seem like a bit of an about face from what I had been doing the, the previous 10 years. But I didn't have, in all my wealth of experience, I really didn't have that much experience explicitly in the areas of energy production and supply. Most of my experience was on the wholesale side and in the financial world. And an opportunity at NRG came up from a previous coworker. And I thought, well, this may, be, this may be a place where I can go and sort of figure it out and not run anything, not take on the burdens of, of changing the industry, just learn and go back to the, the way I used to previously think of just being a sponge and trying to make sure that I was picking up as much as possible. And my, my thought process there was, that I wanted to go in and figure out what was happening in the electricity industry, figure out who the players were and how the market worked. And I really thought I'd be there for a couple of years and then I'd probably go my own way and start my own thing. But NRG kept throwing interesting challenges at me and they gave me enough autonomy to perform that I always wanted to stay and, and see how it turns out. They've been a big ship making a hard turn in a changing market, but they're committed to the transition and being a customer-centric company. And I've mentioned this before, but when you're listening to the market and you're listening to your customers, it's a great opportunity to shine. Well, if you're motivated by the opportunity to learn and figure things out, and here was a chance to join a big company where you could continue your education and then they were smart enough to figure it out and they've just continued to give you opportunities to help them figure things out, which is great to see. You're currently involved in electrification, which I think in 2021, that's probably one of the two or three hot topics and central themes for the industry. You've mentioned in our prior conversations that you feel like we're in a little bit of a, of a hurry up point when it comes to electrification. What do you currently see going on in, in the space and what are you working towards in this regard? That push to electrification is happening for a lot of reasons, including climate change, health, economics. All of those things are, are becoming intertwined. I think the opportunities are, are blatantly obvious in terms of how the energy transition is happening and the availability of that clean energy transition to reach down to the individual and continue the momentum. Part of what we're working on at NRG is that strategy for electric vehicles. And what does that mean for the residential business? What does that mean for the distributed size of our, of our business? If you think about the possibilities of having a national electric fleet of vehicles out there, you're talking about an opportunity for millions of points of both generation and storage. I mean, we're really on the cusp of things. And, it, and it's funny because people who have been in this market for a while will say batteries have been coming for five years for the last 30. But we really are there now. And, it, and it's what's so exciting about looking at pulling together all these mobile sources and the ability to really be your own electricity producer as well as just the consumer, right? I mean, Houston is, is one of those economies that is making a shift. We have so, for so long, we've called ourselves and have been named the energy capital of the world, but it's, it's all been primarily fossil fuels. And, and now we've got a city that's not only put out a climate action plan 
and is committed to becoming carbon neutral and is looking at their fleet electrification. And they're doing so with a public-private partnership called Evolve Houston. Their stated goal is 30% of new cars being sold by 2030 to be electric vehicles. And it seems like a, a long putt from 12 to 15 months ago when we were first starting to it to now where I think we've got 40 electric vehicles that have been announced coming out in, in the next two years. It's astounding. 620 miles of range in a new Tesla Roadster. It's incredible. And it's so far from where we've been that that concept of electrification and what electrification can do in our personal lives is just a huge motivator. Yeah, that Evolve Houston project's a really interesting one. We had a chance earlier this year to spend time with the folks from the city of Houston and their sustainability department on the climate action plan. And the structure of this Evolve Houston program, I think, is really interesting because, as you mentioned, it's, it's a public-private partnership that I think is a good model, frankly, for other, other major cities to emulate. I've really been impressed, and I think we're getting close to a tipping point where because of so many companies making emission reduction commitments, when they look at their overall emissions profile, they've got to tackle transportation. And the number of large corporates and universities and cities that are looking at fleet electrification right now is is really kind of astounding. So I think 2021 is going to be a big year for fleet electrification in particular. I think that's right. And I, I think when you get to that level, it really points out where there might be inconsistencies in the grid, where we might need to to shore up some places, and the technology that's going to be required that is probably in development right now, but managing all of those disparate sources that can be sources and uses of electrons, I think is going to be incredibly exciting. And there's probably, I'm sure someone has invented it, but being able to manage the grid in that way is going to require a little bit of a mind shift and probably a pretty robust software shift into how we manage the ability to to plug all of those little plugs into the much bigger grid. Yeah, that's a whole separate subject, but it's going to be just fascinating to watch and see how the grid evolves to kind of keep up with what's happening in the market. We've talked about your background. We've talked about what you're doing now. What impact do you want to leave on the company when you're gone? When you move on to whatever's next for Linda Clemens, what do you want your legacy to be at NRG? I think I want to leave a legacy of independent thinkers and leaders and listeners, wherever they may be, whether it's NRG or, or they've moved on to other places. You know, My ideas don't always turn into the next big thing, but it's important to me that I've been allowed to work on those ideas and find the value. And I love seeing the success in former colleagues and team members, whether they stay in the energy industry or, or they go on and do other things. A year ago, almost today, I was in the jungles of Peru with a group of corporate sustainability professionals. And it was a fascinating journey of this relatively small group of people who had a tremendous age range from early 20s to 50s, and everybody had something to contribute, and everyone had something that the other team members there were 
we're able to learn from. And I think keeping that mindset of we can all learn from each other and giving people the chance to teach us is the legacy that I would like to leave behind. You clearly have had a dramatic personal impact on the company. And it's interesting to hear your desire and interest to really help shape the mindset of the next wave of leaders at the company. And if you can help them become as curious as you are and as focused on learning and as fearless about figuring things out, that'll be a great legacy for you there at the company indeed, Linda. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about where where things are headed. Where do you see the industry moving toward in the next three to five years? What do you think we'll be talking about? And I know the next three to five years seems like an eternity when you just think of what's happened in the last seven to eight months. But Or the last seven to eight days. <laughs> yes, that's right. But what's your take on on kind of where things are headed and what we'll be talking about? I firmly believe, and we've seen it happen, and it's going to continue to happen. And honestly, Richard Sandor was the first one, I think, who, who vocalized this. But the integration of the environment, finance, and energy, aligning the incentives that allow competitive markets to work, that is really where the market is heading and, and what certainly what companies like NRG have been fighting for. We probably will take it for granted in five years, but the personalization as the industry continues to give individuals the opportunities to participate in the marketplace, I think will become a natural response. Now, there's still a majority of of Americans who expect the power to turn on when they flick the switch. And when they flick the switch, they don't necessarily think about all that's gone into the ability for them to power that ceiling fan or that light. But now with personal solar, with personal batteries, with the ability to participate in community programs, I feel like people are going to have a much better idea of how their consumption is impacting their overall environment. And what does it mean for them from a financial perspective? If you think about the ability to understand how you can contribute to your overall environment and what that means to you, a lot more people will understand that if I choose the time when the grid is stressed to run my dishwasher, then perhaps I'm, I'm not being as thoughtful and my time of use rates are going to show me from an economic perspective that I should think about doing that later in the evening. And so I think that alignment that comes down to a personalization level is going to be something that becomes very natural for us. Yeah. I like to say that the future, the grid's distributed. And if you think about, you know, what you're describing, and that is a future where there's a much higher level of awareness on the part of energy consumers for kind of the impact that their behavior has on the energy that's used and the financial implications that heightened sense of awareness can certainly lead to some interesting things. Are there any technologies in particular that you're interested in that you think are going to have a have a big impact? Another one of the big themes next year that we think is going to emerge is this the increasing buzz and talk about hydrogen and its impact on the energy industry and the future promise of green hydrogen if we can figure out how to get it 
produced at scale. Produced and distributed, right? And I think right. distribution is is always the crux of the issue, whether you're talking about the the last mile for telephony, for natural gas pipelines, for cable, for hydrogen, any of that, right? That the ability or vaccine, let's say, the the ability to get that product distributed is a tremendous hurdle. But yeah, I think I am supportive of anything that allows us to use our natural know-how to create opportunities for the world to move forward in a cleaner way. We know that we're consumers. We've shown that certainly in, in this country, but the, the know-how and the, the pioneering spirit, I think, will keep us going. And I love the idea of being able to, to produce power from sources that we haven't originally thought about. Great. Thank you for that. Look, you've clearly had a, a fascinating career and you've got a lot more game left in you. So I'm not suggesting that you're anywhere near the end of your career. But <laughs> for those listeners who are just getting started, I, I'd be interested in having you share some advice to them. What, what advice would you have for people who are just getting started in the industry, Linda? So there's two things that I often tell the newcomers to my teams. And at first they sound sort of mutually exclusive, but they really aren't. And the first one is learn everything you can. And that to me almost goes without saying, but sometimes I say it to, to reiterate to people that when they start a career, whether they're starting a degree program or whether they're starting a job, getting a sense of, of everything that's out there, the breadth of what can take place within your industry or your body of knowledge is, is really important and getting the most perspective that you can. But then the second piece of, of information is also to become an expert in the area within the industry that excites you and interests you. I mean, if you're not interested in it, then you're not going to want to go in depth. That in-depth knowledge piece and the process of mastery really gives you an opportunity to show off your talents and gives people the chance to appreciate your talents because you have to be more than just a generalist in this world and you have to be a person with a really smart base of knowledge, but you also have to have the ability to go deep. And once you've learned how to dive deeper into certain areas, then I think it's much easier for other people to see how you could translate that into something that's of interest to them. Well, learning everything you can and becoming an expert in what excites you is a great formula and recipe for a success. I think those are two great pieces of advice, Linda. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Smart Energy Voices, Linda. This was, this was really a great conversation. I'll continue to look forward with interest at the impact that you're going to have on the marketplace. Thank you, John, for this opportunity. It really it has been a lot of fun to talk to you. I hope we get to do it again in person sometime. Yeah, the time's gone by too quickly, and I look forward to doing it in person and hopefully over a meal and at one of our events. Likewise. Thank you so much. To our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, leave a review, and tell your colleagues and peers about it. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition in Smart Energy Voices on our website and at our events, all in the interest of helping you 
make smart energy decisions. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. Thank you.